This morning, we are going to be in Proverbs chapter 24, continuing the, uh, as I mentioned last week, that there's this series of, of, of Proverbs going through chapter 23 and chapter 24, the, these 30 sayings. I think actually they, they might have begun in 22, as a matter of fact. But they are uh, just these constant sayings of, of different types, and, and not necessarily any order, other than that they are very similar to a similar grouping of sayings coming out of Egypt. Today's, though, we're going to see that they are kind of they, they're thematic. They go along with each other. They're, they're focused predominantly over wickedness and righteousness and uh, warnings against the wicked, but also some statements about the righteous. And overwhelmingly, the idea of the resilience of the righteous. And in these days, as in all days and ages, we need to be reminded of the fact that though at times righteousness looks to the world as weakness, as obeying God, not our baser desires or instincts can seem foolish, that this is truly the way to continue and to be able to go through difficulties and hardships and come out the other side, sometimes even stronger than when you went through them and began. We're going we're gonna to look at verses 15 through 25 this morning. And, and in fact, the, the 30 sayings part finishes in 22. And so we're tacking on a few verses that don't go along with that theme. But they go along with our greater theme about the resilience of the righteous. We begin in verse 15 with a statement to the wicked. Uh, a warning to the wicked. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not destroy his resting place. And this is a, uh, a double statement. They're, they're talking about the same thing. The, the dwelling, where he abides, where he lives. It's the, it comes from a word that means the, the abode of a shepherd or the flocks. The place where they would take care of them and even improve it to beautify it. It comes from a verb meaning to beautify. So it's the idea of, of you've moved into an area and you are making it better by your presence there, your dwelling place. But the, the same idea is conveyed in the resting place, the literally the, the stretching out. Where do you sleep? You know, like the, uh, wherever you sleep, that's home kind of an idea. Don't, wicked person, wicked man, don't lie in wait, don't, don't be ready to, to, to attack, and don't come with an attitude to destroy the home, the resting place of the righteous person. Don't do this thing because as we will see in verse 16, for a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. He, the, the warning is don't come against their place, the dwelling, the home of the righteous person because even though you attack him and even though he falls and even though he were to fall seven times, which is a significant number, 
the number of days in the week. We remember in New Testament that Peter asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? And he thought he was doing a good job tacking seven on there. Most people said, you know, forgive him two or three times, but after that, forget it. Seven is an important number. So when the psalmist says, uh, even though the righteous man falls seven times, it has the idea of completeness, as in a total destruction it would seem. Just as God's work of creation was completed in seven days. And we, we talk about in Revelation the great tribulation that has a time span of seven years. And whether we uh, equate that with a literal seven years or just the idea of complete and total tribulation. That, that's one of the ideas that is conveyed in the word of seven is that it is total, complete. So the idea is that though a righteous man would fall, Seven times. So his, he would just continue to fall and be completely devastated. Though you attack him, he rises again. But the wicked stumble in time of calamity. The, the wicked will not rise again. The wicked, even though nobody is attacking them because they're going forward and creating the calamity, they're going to stumble. They're going to be the one who falls, who staggers in the, in the wicked time. Now the, the question arises, why does the righteous man rise again? Even though he falls seven times, what is it about the righteous man that he rises again? Is it just because he's so good? Is he just so strong and so powerful? Is he just so resilient in himself that you can't keep a righteous person down? I don't necessarily think so. Some, some wicked people are pretty strong and, and have minds of, of vigor where they just, they don't, they're never going to take anything lying down. They're always going to get back up. But in verse 17, we are told, and, and it's an injunction, and it really is kind of conveyed more to the righteous person. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't be glad and celebrate when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Now, who stumbled in the last verse? It was the wicked man who stumbles. So don't rejoice when your enemy falls. And this is a repeat of the idea in verse 15, uh, that though a righteous, or 16, excuse me, that, that a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Don't, don't be happy to see somebody that you're an enemy with who, who is hurting you. Don't be glad to see them fall. Don't be glad to see them stumble. Because verse 18 tells us, or the Lord, or Yahweh, will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. God is not happy when we are happy at other people's misfortune. God is not pleased when we are happy and rejoice at another person's devastation. Even if they are wicked, even if they're your enemy, God is not pleased if we celebrate their fall. And in fact, if we do that, what the, what the uh, proverb is telling us, what Solomon is saying is, is, is that the Lord might see your rejoicing over your enemy's misfortune and relent. Turn away from 
the, the judgment that he is bringing. Now, you can interpret that as saying that, oh, well, if you really want to make sure your enemy is punished, don't be happy about it, because then God will really give it to him. That's not the idea. The idea is that God is bringing about what is proper and right for the enemy. And yet, your gloating about it, your excitement about it, your happiness about it, displeases God. It's, and so he will even relinquish some of what is due that wicked person, that enemy who has fallen, because of your joy in it. So we're not supposed to be happy. And I know that can be difficult sometimes. Sometimes it really it, it's just fun to see somebody who has caused your life trouble to take a hit. But what this is conveying is God's love for all people. God loves your enemy as much as He loves you. And Jesus Christ died on the cross for your enemy as much as He died on the cross for you. And, and so it is a horrible thing to have an attitude that is so callous toward even our enemies that we would hope they have misfortune. We're not supposed to pray for their destruction, but for their salvation. This is why he tells us to uh, love those who hate you, to do good to those who hurt you, to feed them, to give them water to drink. And in so doing, you will heap burning coals on their head. The right attitude for a believer in God, for a follower of Jesus Christ, is to not rejoice when their enemies, those people who hurt them, stumble and fall but to want their good. That's, that's the idea, that we should have such a mind as God has that we care for those who don't like us, that we love those who hate us. And, and here's the focus, though. Notice God's involvement in this situation. God hasn't set it all up and then stepped back. God hasn't said, well, I've decided everything that's going to ever happen and it's going to follow that plan. God has all knowledge... He knows what is coming. He knows what we're doing. He knows what we've done. And He knows what we will do. And He is active with us in time. He can relent from decisions that He might make based on us. He might choose to do things that He otherwise would not have chosen to do based on us. That is why we pray. Yeah, He already knew about it. We can't understand being outside of time like He is. But the point of the matter is, is that he is involved and that he will receive um, from us our heart attitude. And if our heart attitude is, is I'm so glad to see that person is hurt and that person is falling and that person is stumbling, he might relent from that because he is displeased at what he sees going on in our heart. And so when we get back to the question of, well, how is it that the righteous man, though he falls seven times, rises again? And the answer is here in verse 18. It's the Lord's involvement. The, the righteous man, the righteous rise because God intervenes. It's not because the righteous are so great in themselves. It's not because they are stronger or more resilient. Their resilience is because of God. That He intervenes in their lives. That He brings them up again because they are righteous. They are His. He helps us rise again. It is not in our own ability, but in God. Just as he can relent and turn away from his anger from the, the enemy who 
has fallen and stumbled. Similarly, he intervenes in our lives and he picks us up and he helps us overcome when we fall. He lifts us up again. We see this so often through Scripture that God restores people after they have sinned. He restored David after his sin with Bathsheba. God restored him and brought him back. We see this in Elijah. Elijah runs away. He has had it. He is tired. He wants to die. And God could rebuke him. God could judge him. God feeds him and sins says, you don't have enough strength for the journey. And then God gives him help. He says, okay, you appoint Elisha to be your successor. God responds to Elijah and works with him and says, okay, I've, I've taken you to your limit, I guess. We have no idea what Elijah would have done had he not run away. But the point of the matter is, is that God accepted it restored him, brought him back, and helped him, and gave him the help he needs. And that is, that is the, the core of the resilience of the righteous is that uh, we rise because God intervenes in our lives. Not because of how strong we are, not because of how wealthy or powerful or anything like that. The righteous person seeks God. The righteous person uh, cries out to God for deliverance. And God intervenes. As we continue in this, this struggle between wickedness and righteousness, now in, in verse uh, 15 and 16, it was uh, an instruction against the wicked not to lie in wait. 17 and 18, you could take that both ways. It could be wicked or righteous person. It, it's really written to us that we should not rejoice when our enemy falls or when they stumble. Verse 19 now comes completely to those that are followers of, of God, and in our case, followers of Jesus Christ. 19 tells us, do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. So, whereas the first one was telling the wicked person, don't attack the dwelling place of the righteous, now we're being told, hey, righteous people, don't fret over the wicked. Don't be envious of them either. And that, that word fret, uh, you know, when you fret, that seems like you're worrying about, like, oh, you're bothered, you worry. That's not exactly the word that is being communicated there. Uh, the word is chara, which means to burn or to be kindled with anger. So the idea is, good case in point, you know, the, the wicked were out this morning on their little two-wheel vehicles, uh, getting in between me and the church every step of the way, and my heart, I fretted, I burned, I, I, I had vicious thoughts about these cyclists doing the devil's work this morning, you know, and I, I mean, and I, I had to acknowledge to my kids, I am sorry, I am so angry right now about these people, you know, they're just doing their thing, it just happens that their thing is all the way on, on the road between here, my home and here. But that's what it's talking about. It's not fretting. It's that you're stirring yourself up. You're igniting your heart with anger over the, the evildoers. And, and that's an easy thing to do, isn't it? To get worked up about people who do bad things. To, to get angry. To burn with anger about those who are doing wickedness and that are doing evil. 
The other half of it, though, is don't be envious of the wicked. Don't uh, be jealous of them or zealous for them is, is kind of the idea. Don't envy the wicked. Sometimes I think we can look and say, why are they succeeding in these areas? They're wicked. Why should wicked people who do not believe in Jesus, who do not acknowledge God, why should they have success in life? And, and you can be jealous of them. And he says, don't be envious of them. Don't, don't get all angry about them. Don't let your heart burn and be consumed about them. But also, don't be jealous. Don't envy them. Don't sit there and say, why them and not me? Because, and, and the reason he says it is in verse 20. For there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Similar idea to what we saw in verse 16. The righteous man falls and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. There is no future for the evil man. They, they will not last. They will not endure. That, that word future has kind of the same idea of when we talk about enduring through hardship. That we are being patient. That we are waiting. That we are hoping in God. They have no hope. They have no future. There is no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. That, that They're going to be snuffed out. They're going to die. They have no hope. No future. They might look good today. They might be affecting you today. But whereas the righteous man will rise, the wicked man stumbles. And in fact, he has no future. He has no life ahead of him. At some point, he is going to be put out. He's going to be snuffed out. Verse 21 continues this idea. He says, My son, fear the Lord and the King. Fear, fear God, but also fear the King and as, as the one who has been appointed by God to bring justice in the world. That is what governments are designed to do. To, to uh, reward the righteous and to punish the wicked. Whether they do that or not, that's what they're supposed to do. And our responsibility as subjects and citizens is to fear the Lord and fear the King. You know, fear the laws of the land. Fear those who uh, bring justice to the land. And then he says, do not associate with those who are given to change. Don't associate with those who are given to, uh, to change. To, to either This could be understood to be the idea of people who want to have uprisings and to overthrow the government. It, it could just be have the idea of, of those that want to uh, change the, and, and redo things. It, it, the, the word change there has kind of the idea of to do again, to make something new. What does it mean to associate with them? Does that mean I don't want to talk to them at work? That we can't have any commonality? That word associate is a word that we've seen previously to take a pledge for somebody. That was an idea that was early in Proverbs about not not taking a pledge for a stranger. Not being surety for a stranger. That you needed to not get entangled in other people's affairs. And that's the idea when you associate with those who are given a change. That's the idea. Don't, don't partner with them. Don't be buddy-buddy with them. Don't uh, pledge yourself to them. 
It's one thing to talk to them in a public setting or interact with them in passing, but don't don't pledge yourself to them. Don't become entangled with them. And the reason being is, is you don't want to go the way they're going. For their calamity will rise suddenly. So the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Now we got this idea of calamity coming back. Their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin that comes from both of them? Who knows the ruin that's going to come either from the, the, the king or God that is going to destroy those who would seek to overthrow, to change the world and the government. He's saying, don't associate with these people who are trying to mess things up. And so, don't fret because of evildoers. They don't have a future. Don't associate with those who are given a change because in essence, they don't have a future. Their calamity will rise. We don't know when. We've seen it in, in earth. Sometimes it goes on for decades. But their calamity will come and it will come suddenly. And who knows what ruin is going to come from either God or the king. And so as, as we're thinking about how do we live as righteous people on the earth when people uh, live in wicked ways and wickedness seems to rule the day and to win the day oftentimes. You know, the, the lie gets around the world twice before the truth gets its pants on. And people believe the lies. People prefer So we should not be surprised when they vote for it. We should not be surprised when they go headlong after it as their entertainment. We should not be surprised of these things. How can we be resilient in wicked times? It's to remind ourselves that it is not up to us. We don't need to judge. We don't need to punish. We don't need to burn with anger and become envious of the wicked. We definitely don't want to join them in their behavior. Because the truth is is that they don't have a future. And, And so for the righteous person, what we are called to do is to trust God to handle the wicked. That we should trust God that He is going to take care of it. We don't have to either through the king, through the the courts, and through the systems of the world that are in place, our government, the wicked will be taken care of, or through God. We don't have to strive and attack and seek their downfall. Their downfall will come. What we are encouraged to do, just as we are not to rejoice when uh, when they fall, We don't need to be all worked up about the evildoers. We need to focus on, am I following God? Am I trusting in the Lord? Part of the resilience of the righteous is their trust in the Lord. He is the one that intervenes and helps us rise again when we struggle, when we fall, when enemies attack us. He is the one that brings us through. And similarly, as we trust in God's intervention in our lives and the fact that God sees and reacts to what is going on, we don't need to get worked up. We don't need to become angry. We don't need to envy and try to change things. In fact, we are warned against joining with those who would seek to change things in such a way. 
because we don't know what calamity can come out of it. I'm, I'm somewhat reminded and, and think about, you know, there, there were some people a, couple, a few years ago, January 6th, when they were sitting outside uh, the Capitol building. There were some people that had no idea what was going on. They were just walking with the crowd. And before they knew it, months later, they were in jail. And, and whatever we can say about overreach of government or harsh sentencing or anything like that, you had people who associate with who uh, associate with those who were given to change, and they didn't know what calamity would befall them. Some people went there seeking things, and other people didn't. We got to be careful who we associate with, who we pledge ourselves with, because. Bad things can come out of it, even when we don't mean to do anything ourselves. And that is the warning there that we watch out. It, it, and, and this is an interesting thought because we are Americans. And our country began with change, with those who sought to overthrow that which was. They did not fear the king as a representative of God. It's food for thought. It's a hard thing to read and to preach as an American citizen because it, it really, to a certain extent, attacks our very founding as a nation. And yet this is what God's Word says. We leave the 30 sayings and, and are told in verse 23, these also are sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judgment is not good. To show partiality, to, to, to be kind to one person and not another as a court. To have favorites when you're trying to bring about judgment is not good. Flat statement. In fact, verse 24 takes it a little bit further. He who says to the wicked... You are righteous. So continuing this idea of the wicked and the righteous and the contrast between them. He who would say to the wicked, you are righteous, peoples will curse him. Nations will abhor him. Those who would claim that a person who is doing wickedness is a good person. Those who would say to a person who is wicked in their heart, you are righteous. People will curse such a person that would say such a polluted thing, such a perverted statement. Nations will abhor them. Now, obviously in our life, what do we see? We see nations celebrate these things. We see people celebrate such ideas. But remember, the wicked will not last. They have no future. Their lamp will go out. We don't know when their calamity will come, but it will come suddenly. So it is not good to proclaim, even if that seems to be the way the world works, it is not good to proclaim the wicked righteous. And over time, yeah, the nations will curse him. Nations will abhor him. I think of Prime Minister Chamberlain in England. When he came back to England from Munich with peace in our time, and everybody cheered. But today, everybody looks back and says, what a fool. What an ignorant person. What a fool that he could not see the wicked and the evilness of Hitler. 
They might be praised for a short term, but peoples will curse Him. Nations will abhor Him. We're told in verse 25, but to those who rebuke the wicked, not those who say to the wicked, oh, you are righteous, but no, those who would actually stand up to the, the wicked and rebuke them, say you are wrong, you are doing bad things, you are wicked. To those people who would stand up to those who are wicked and rebuke them, there will be delight and a good blessing will come upon them. Whereas the person who says to the wicked, you're righteous, oh, it's a curse. But to the one who would actually stand up and rebuke, there's a blessing. And, and, and again, you know, immediately we don't necessarily see it. But as we look back, as time makes everything come into focus, we can see times when there were people who uh, courageously stood up and said something was wrong and all the world around them rebuked them. And then years later, everybody agrees. They were right. They stood. They spoke. There will be a good blessing to come upon them. It may not be in this life. It may not be on this earth that is ruled by wickedness in the flesh. But it will be right. It will be blessed in God's kingdom and in His ways. And that's the focus. That God is the resilience of the righteous. That He intervenes in our lives and that He takes care of the wicked in our lives. And so what we are encouraged to do and challenged to do by this, uh, these last few verses is to so live and speak in truth. That we would live based on the truth, Jesus Christ. That we would live and seek to be people of the truth. And when we have the opportunity that we would speak the truth, no matter what might come of it. That doesn't mean we have to be harsh with it. We can be wise with it, but we must speak the truth. Not because of ourselves, but because of our hope in God. Those who rebuke the wicked, will, to them will be delight. And a blessing will come upon them. The only way we're going to be able to get through in a world that peddles lies, in a world that lives off of lies, is to be people who speak truth. To be people who live truth. Whether it's what we want to agree with or not. Whether it's what makes us happy or not. Whether it is what uh, gives us joy or not. The question is, what do we do? Do we bend our words and try to bend our reality to our desires and therefore bend the truth into a lie? Or do we bend ourselves to God's Word? Do we bend ourselves to God's revealed will? The resilience and the right of the righteous is that we bend to God. That we bend to His will, His truth. And we so live in Him and speak Him that we live and speak in truth. And we may fall. The world may beat up on us. The world may drop us. The world may do all sorts of things to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Those who follow God and seek Him. 
But though we fall seven times, we will rise again. Because it's not us, it's not our own power. It is God who intervenes on our behalf. And because it is God who intervenes on your behalf, you don't have to try to slide your way through a situation with half lies or half truths. But we can speak the truth. We can live the truth. Because God is the one who intervenes and God will take care of the wicked in his own time. So trust in the Lord. Trust in his ways. Trust in him who is true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that it is not anything that is in us other than your Holy Spirit. But it is nothing about us ourselves that helps us to be resilient, but it is because the righteous seek you that you intervene in their lives, that you give us hope, that even as the world rages and spreads lies, your truth wins out. The truth wins out. And the righteous, the righteous will, will last and will endure. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust in you, that we would rest in you in these difficult times. Lord, that our focus and our our faith would not be in humans, in elected officials, in our own abilities, but that our hope and our faith would be in you. We ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.